Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. It's been a busy week of news in space exploration, including several crewed and uncrewed missions. We found out about the latest journeys of the Virgin Galactic spacecraft and some brave new explorations from China, Japan, as well as the European Space Agency. And of course, NASA's Juno mission finally reaching the halfway point on its long journey to Jupiter. Virgin Galactic reached a pretty significant milestone this week for crewed commercial private ventures into space. And that is because they managed to launch their Virgin Galactic spaceship all the way up into space. Or at least space, considering how the United States Air Force, FAA, and NASA define it, which is about 50 miles or 80 kilometers for us people using the SI units above the surface of the Earth. Now, that's not officially the internationally accepted standard, uh, which uses the Kármán line, which is around 100 kilometers or 62 miles, but it's more or less in the region of space. Far enough above the Earth that you can't use conventional aeronautics and and have to rely on other braking mechanisms in order to propel yourself through the upper Earth's atmosphere. But nevertheless, it's a pretty significant achievement, mostly because the Virgin Galactic experience has suffered many setbacks over the last decade or so. Now, just to give you a little bit of a brief history and an explanation of how the concept works, the Virgin Galactic uh, spaceship is based around the X-Prize winning Spaceship One concept. Now, all the way back in 2000s, there was a prize called the Ansari X Prize, uh, which was created by Paul G. Allen and Bert Rutten, who are both aerospace engineers and billionaires. And they founded this million dollar prize, $10 million prize, to kickstart private development of rocket ships that would make spaceflight available to the public. Now, the winner of that was the Spaceship One concept, all the way back in the late 2000, early 2000s. And then in 2004, Branson, Richard Branson, the founder of Virgin Galactic and Virgin Enterprises, licensed that spaceship design and technology. And he envisaged carrying passengers into space by 2007 from a place in New Mexico he called Spaceport America. But there were setbacks after the initial heady days of initial founding of this concept of a spaceport. Most importantly, aside from the GFC hitting in 2008, was a disaster in the spaceship engine testing that occurred in 2007 where three technicians testing the propellant system uh, were killed in an explosion on the ground while testing the engines then in 2014 the second spaceship spaceship two broke apart during a test flight and the co-pilot was unfortunately killed and the injured pilot only barely managed to survive falling from high altitude with a special parachute now, since then, there's been several advancements and changes to the design. Virgin's brought a lot of that testing back in-house rather than outsourcing it. And they've made significant adjustments to the design itself. And the design is very interesting. If you haven't seen it, it bases around a Virgin Spaceship Unity, which is basically a substantive plane, which carries the rocket all the way up to an altitude of 13 kilometers above the Earth. Then... It drops the actual spaceship, which engages its rocket-propelled engines, which launches at that final bit up into the atmosphere, out of the atmosphere, and into space. Then that little spaceship 
the spaceship four in this case, descends back to Earth and lands like a plane, very similar to the space shuttle. But the main difference here compared to the space shuttle and other competing technologies is that it doesn't rely on big heavy rocket booster stages that are non-recoverable. It's only got a small amount of propellant that launches itself from a very high altitude. Otherwise it relies on basically a conventional plane to fly up to that high altitude. Now it can't carry as heavy cargoes as perhaps SpaceX's missions, but it is pretty good for carrying passengers up into space. It is very different from, say, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin concept, which launches people up on a conventional-style rocket. But uh, the Virgin Galactic mission is much more plane-like, which is obviously very important for someone with a background in planes. And the fact that they've managed to reach what the FFA and NASA consider as space is quite a significant achievement. It doesn't mean that you can go out tomorrow and purchase yourself a ticket for Virgin Galactic. Well, you can set you back a couple million dollars, but you won't be getting on a plane anytime soon. But you're much, much closer to that dream becoming a reality. And we're only about 12 years behind where Richard Branson initially forecast, which in the scale of things is actually pretty reasonable. But this has taken a lot of work, hard work by scientists and engineers, and come at a huge personal price, specifically for the people who've been killed in the testing and build-up to this. Which just goes to show that space exploration, whilst exciting and interesting, costs a lot of money and a lot of human life to get to. Now, highlighting just how dangerous crewed space travel can be, Russian cosmonauts have recently inspected the Soyuz spacecraft, which is currently docked at the International Space Station. Now, the International Space Station at the moment is resupplied primarily by Soyuz space missions. And that's primarily how we get astronauts to and from the International Space Station. But all the way back in August, there was a massive air leak on the ISS, caused by a Soyuz spaceship that had docked there. And after investigations, it was determined what was causing that air leak was a 2mm cavity on the Soyuz spaceship. Now that cavity or that hole, it's not in a place that would cause damage to prevent someone from re-entering the Earth's atmosphere or coming back to Earth on the Soyuz, but would still potentially cause issues for the space station with it docked there. And there was a lot of accusations back and forth. How did this hole get there? Could it have been from a meteorite? And space junk hitting the meteor and anything in space is very, very dangerous indeed. But the hole was too small to likely be caused like that without being detected by, obviously, a collision hitting the ISS. And when you think about the other potential causes, what could it be? A manufacturing error or defect? Or perhaps even deliberate sabotage, which at one point was suggested by Russian authorities by a cosmonaut or astronaut keen to get back home. But veteran cosmonauts Oleg Kononenko and Sergei Prokopiev took a 7-hour and 45-minute spacewalk armed with knives and shears. They tried to cut out samples around this mysterious hole to bring them back to Earth to enable study to try and identify what was the cause of this issue. Now, unlike the ISS or even the late space shuttle. The Soyuz spacecraft isn't designed to be to have repairs done to it in space. It's got no external railings or guardings that you can use to hold on to. 
And that makes it very, very difficult indeed to get around, which is why this space walk took so very long. Now that sample will be taken back down to Earth and studied and analyzed. But what could realistically be in the cause? A manufacturing defect would be rare as they don't normally occur and do get inspected very thoroughly before they get launched into space. But it is possible that during production and testing that the craft itself was damaged at the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan and patched up hastily so that it could pass the initial safety checks uh, and sealed up the hole. But then that ceiling has then come away once the Soyuz craft itself has reached the ISS. And these are the kind of things that the Russia is trying to get to the bottom of to understand just how this hole was caused. Because it might seem like a pretty tense diplomatic situation with the Russians blaming potentially American astronauts and vice versa, but it's not a laughing matter when it comes to the health and safety of the astronauts in space or the cosmonauts. Because such a hole could cause air leaks in the space station, but it can also cause potential damage on re-entry, which could lead to obviously... And just to highlight, but all the way back in October, NASA astronaut Nick Haig and Roscosmos cosmonaut Reshki Ovechin managed to survive a bruising and very, very dangerous ballistic re-entry where their Soyuz spacecraft suffered basically a catastrophic failure on re-entry, which left, obviously, the ISS without any other resupply craft, and the astronaut and cosmonauts were very, very lucky to actually have managed to walk away unscathed. Ballistic re-entry, for those playing along at home, just means basically it propelled towards the ground in an uncontrolled manner like a rocket. So a small hole, two millimeters in size, could lead to problems, just like what happened in some of the space shuttle disasters. So it's important that we make sure we check these things out. Away from crewed missions into space to uncrewed missions into space, and China's Chang'e 4 lander and rover spacecraft has successfully entered lunar orbit. And not just lunar orbit, but preparing for landing a lander onto the surface, or rover, onto the surface of the dark side of the moon. It's currently hanging around in an elliptical lunar polar orbit around 100 kilometers above the surface of the moon. It's all part of China's lunar exploration program called CLEP, uh, and it's a big stay for them. Chang'e 4 was launched on the Long March 3B carry rocket from Zishan Satellite Launch Center south of China all the way back in December 7th, and had a 110 hour long journey to the moon. And this final part was to reorientate this lander and rover into the right position to be able to launch down and touch down on the surface of the moon. Now, that won't occur for a little bit of time yet, but they're targeting a location on the South Pole Aitken Basin, which is basically a 2,500 kilometer wide, 12 kilometer deep ancient impact crater. And it's a site of intense scientific interest because it contains exposed material from the moon's upper mantle. 
which is incredibly important because it can help us shed light on the history and the development of the moon. As we've talked about several times here on the podcast, there are several competing theories, which range from a planet the size of Mars colliding with the Earth, thus forming the moon, to captured objects formed in the stages of our solar system. So that's why studying this crater in particular will be fascinating. Now, the actual scheduled date for landing this landing lander onto the surface of the dark side of the moon won't take place till early 2019 in January is the suspected launch time. And it builds on the previous success of China's uncrewed missions to the moon. For example, the Chang'e 3 lander and rover, which landed in 2013, marked China as the third country to achieve a soft landing on the lunar surface, and the first since Soviet Union's Luna all the way back in 1976. Now, Chang'e 4 will be the next mission, and it will be followed up by Chang'e 5, which will be launched later in 2019. And Chang'e 5 will be particularly exciting because it will actually be a sample and return mission. It will take samples from the moon surface and send it back all the way to Earth to enable study. So this just goes to show you some of the great work being done part of the China Lunar Exploration Project. Now, hurtling around, sort of close to Earth, is the asteroid Ryugu, which is a carbonaceous near-Earth asteroid. And since November 2014, the Japanese space agency, JAXA, space probe, has been hurtling towards it and circling it, trying to study it in a variety of levels of detail. And what's important about this JAXA probe is actually is it's equipped with four landers, and it's going to be a sample and return mission as well. So the Hayabusa 2 is similar to the original Hayabusa spacecraft, but obviously with some design improvements. And it carries with it a variety of different types of scientific instruments. It's got four different rovers. Mobile asteroid service here, it's called Mascot, Rover 1A, 1B and 2. And these rovers are shaped a bit like cookie cut tins. And they have currently been traveling all over the surface of Ryogu, trying to take pictures and determine, if possible, where there would be a good landing site. Now, the mascot initial small rover had a non-rechargeable battery and it landed all the way back in October 2018. And it charged around for more than 17 hours and took lots and lots of photos. The Rover 1A, Hubu, and Rover 1B, Owl, are rechargeable via solar panels and they include lots of different types of cameras and thermometers. They've been trundling around since September 2018. Now the last rover, Rover 2, is scheduled to land in July 2019. And the Hayabusa craft itself is also expected to land on the asteroid. And the reason why it needs to do that is it needs to take a sample and then shoot that sample back to Earth inside a capsule, a sample return capsule. Now that is going to be pretty interesting, but it's not going to occur till the very end of the science phase of the mission, because obviously you have to crash the main craft, Hayabusa 2, into the asteroid in order to achieve this. But the problem is, 
the rovers that have been trundling around the surface of Urogu have been trying to find a good place for Hayabusa to land. And in Japanese space agencies said in the more than 200 photos taken by small rovers on the asteroid, there's no signs of a really clear, smooth area that this the Hayabusa 2 spacecraft could touch down on, which makes it very, very difficult. Most of the photos show a very rocky and non-smooth surface. And that's challenging because it means that there's nowhere you can really land a relatively large space probe, unlike these small rovers that are trundling around at the moment. Whilst it has narrowed down potential landing spots, there's no ideal candidate. They're still analysing data sent by the rovers, and they also still have the prospect of sending a last rover in order to investigate. Now, one of these rovers has actually travelled around 300 metres across the asteroid, and it's done this by hopping around, launching itself briefly and then falling back down to the surface of the asteroid. And this is pretty interesting as a method. Now, the data collected by so far show that it's very, very similar in shape and surface to Bennu, an asteroid that's currently being studied by NASA and its spacecraft, Osiris-Rex. And one of the important parts of these findings is, is that these asteroids are more moist and more studded with boulders than any scientist previously thought. But difficult and rocky times are ahead for the JAXA space probe as they try and figure out a way to land it smoothly and get that sample and return mission completed. So we wait with bated breath to see what happens in the new year for this mission. We just mentioned the Osiris-Rex mission to the asteroid Bennu undertaken by NASA. And the Osiris Rex mission has just arrived on 2nd of December at the asteroid after travelling over 2.2 million kilometres on its journey. And the asteroid Bennu has already yielded some interesting scientific discoveries. Now, one of the key findings from this particular mission was information obtained by the spacecraft Osiris Rex's two spectrometers. Now, the one is focused on visible infrared spectrometer, the other is on thermal emissions. And what they were looking for in particular is the presence of molecules that contain both oxygen and hydrogen atoms bonded together. Now, we call these hydroxyls. Now, the reason why we actually were looking for these is that the team suspects that hydroxyl groups exist pretty much globally across asteroids, specifically in water-bearing clay-like minerals. Now, that's exciting because it means that at some point the rocky material actually interacted with water itself. Now, that makes it a bit odd because Benno itself, whilst being a relatively reasonable sized asteroid, it's unlikely to have been large enough to either contain liquid water. But if the surface contains clay that has indicated with, uh, indicates that it has interacted with liquid water at some point in its life, that suggests that, well, Whatever Benno came from, maybe a larger parent body, a larger asteroid that's broken away from it, obviously contained liquid water of some form at some point in its million-year history. And this is very interesting because for researchers like Ellen Howe, a senior research scientist at UA's Lunar and Planetary Observatory Lab, it means that they can try to reimagine and re-understand how asteroids may form. She states, it's very exciting to see what these hydrated minerals distributed across Bennu's surface, because it suggests that they're an intrinsic part of Bennu's composition, not just sprinkled on the surface by an impact with a comet. The presence of the hydrated minerals across the asteroid confirms that Bennu is a remnant from an early formation of the solar system, and it's pretty much an excellent 
type of thing to study to get a better idea on how organic chemistry and volatile chemistry occurred and changes across space. As a various deputy instrument scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, Amy Simon, has outlined. Now, there's just going to be a long-term mission to study this particular asteroid, and it's going to go on for a long time still to come. It only just began a couple of days ago. And it will remain in close orbit till around February 2019, and then it moves into its next sort of survey phase. But this is some great and interesting work by NASA and partner universities like the University of Arizona to try and determine and figure out what exactly makes up the asteroids that are hanging around our solar system. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. This is what you found about crewed and uncrewed missions all over space, from asteroids to mysterious holes in Soyuz spacecraft. We covered the highs and lows and latest research in different missions. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.